all these issues, no one can really be an expert in everything. But I think just doing your best, um, keeping up to date, just making sure that you are kept uh, on trend, making sure that you know what's going on at the negotiations, and then making sure that any young person or you know someone who wants to go to a COP for the first time, they go prepared. To some people, dealing with climate change might be depressing. But to Melissa Lowe, an exchange alumni who has been working in the field and participating in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties, or COP, for over a decade, it's not a zero-sum game. In part one of our two-episode series on climate action, Melissa talks about the merits of nature-based climate solutions, her love for books and beer, and why risk-taking is so important. Hi, my name is Melissa Lowe. I'm from Singapore and I'm a Waisili Professional Fellow of Spring 2016. I'm an exchange alumni. When I applied for the Waisili or the Young Southeast Asian Leadership Initiative some years ago, right, back in 2016, so this is, if I, my math is correct, six years ago now, I didn't think of myself as a leader. I was, I was a young researcher in a career where you know, I wasn't even sure whether I was going to be an academic. But you know, you, you, you follow your heart. I, I took a risk, I applied anyway. Uh, and obviously, in order to get to, to being selected, you would have to beat out the rest of your cohort, right, who, who've applied. Um, and I took that leap of faith and I, I went for it. And I, I've, not, I've not re regret a single moment of it because um, for a lot of us women, we also have something called imposter syndrome. And I think it's important to realize that if, no matter what contribution you make, it's still a contribution. It may not matter to other people as long as it matters to yourself, right? So you make that decision to do something, to, to click submit that application, right? To do an exchange program or, um, you know, something like the Waisili Fellowship, whether it's a cat or professional, just, just do it, right? Because you're doing it for yourself at the end of the day. Every experience counts. So as somebody who has uh, subsequently been nominated for things, right, for leadership positions. So if you realize that in order to get to where you want to be, you need to take risks, first of all, you need to, to do the applications. And you, come to, you do come to a point in your career or your life where people then um, have expectations of you and then you're called on to contribute again more and more. So the reward for doing a good job is more work at the end of the day, right? But I think um, I like to think of it as meaningful contribution back to society and, and for myself, right? So um, even though it's quite tiring, it's exhausting to be honest, um, to, be, to be someone in the space dealing with you know, um, questions about how to address climate change, but someone's got to do it and I quite often get upset when people say, you know, we need to do more of this or that. But at the end of the day, it's about us taking that first step, right? So if we don't do it, you can't count on somebody else. So for those of you aspiring leaders out there, I would say um, pretty much just get over yourself and uh, just go for it. Uh, whatever you want to do in life, you, you only have one life. So live it um, as long as you stay true to yourself. Um, for me, as long as I wake up every day and look myself in the mirror and say I've done you know, something with my time and I've contributed back um, to people and initiatives and you know, things that I feel strongly about, I feel happy about that. So um, you create the leader you want to be. While Melissa's interest in climate action can be traced back decades ago, her time at the UN Biodiversity Conference 
or COP15, in 2009, opened her eyes to how countries come together to address global issues. She was fueled not only by the need to address this crisis, but also by a desire to keep learning. Well, I wouldn't say it was a eureka moment. Um, I felt depressed enough, I would say, because uh, it, was, it was a two-week-long conference in Copenhagen. Uh, most of it was uh, for us in the NGO space, non-governmental organization space. We were kept out of the negotiations in week two. Uh, some may remember that uh, NGOs had to get two tickets in order to get in, and the tickets just kept getting smaller and smaller, the numbers of tickets. So in week two, I was, we were literally camping outside of the Bella Centre in Copenhagen, or we were back in our accommodation trying to follow up. And this was way before we had hybrid you know, platforms where we could participate online. So it was very depressing. Uh, we came, I came home uh, to Singapore and I missed the following COP meeting the, the next year. In, I think it was in Cancun. It was also very far to travel for, for us in Singapore. Uh, I think it's more than 30 hours to get to Cancun. So we didn't go, um, but I realized that I didn't have proper mentorship when I went, um, and so I went to COP15 feeling completely unprepared and overwhelmed. And if I could help, and through research and through my work at the National University of Singapore, offer that capacity building, offer that knowledge to people, even marginally to prepare before they even go to a COP meeting, um, that's what I wanted to do. And so I built on, um, so in order to do that, I had to develop some expertise, right? So I read up, I went to the UNFCCC website. I have it as a bookmark on my browser, just so that I get updated on everything relating to COP. I don't consider myself an expert. There's just so many moving parts. And of course, uh, the issues under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change have become pretty nebulous. Uh, anything from mitigation, adaptation, technology, capacity building, we've even got loss and damage, so on and so forth. Um, so all these issues, no one can really be an expert in everything. But I think just doing your best, um, keeping up to date, just making sure that you are kept uh, on trend, making sure that you know what's going on at the negotiations, and then making sure that any young person or you know someone who wants to go to a COP for the first time, they go prepared. And so what we do um, and what I've been doing with uh, not just our university, but with the research and independent NGOs. So we call ourselves the Ringos uh, as part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. We are a constitution. Uh, we, we are one of, uh, I think, nine different constituencies. Uh, there, there are others like business organizations, trade unions, farmers, uh, gender, youth, and so on. So the Ringos, um, I'm part of the steering committee. I think we're now, we've expanded, so I think it's a 10 or 12 member committee right now. And what we do is that we offer free webinars and we, uh, we've, we've done one with Second Nature in the US where we up uploaded a YouTube video uh, of ourselves explaining what COP is like, what shoes to wear, for example, because you're walking around the COP venue. Um, and I think, I like to think that this information has been helpful for people, especially when they go to a COP for the first time. And I certainly felt that, feel that I could have benefited from something like that when I went to my first COP, COP 15, way back in 2009. And so I wanted to present that uh, to the world and to my community. And I think, um, I, I think I've done something with there and um, I've inspired some people and that keeps me going. Melissa has pursued a unique approach to climate action. 
It's a nature-based strategy, which takes into account conserving, restoring, and better managing ecosystems to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So nature-based climate solutions, uh, and I'm very new to this, so please, please indulge me in, in my really bad explanation. Uh, I understand them to be forestry, and you, you, could, you could, for example, preserve forests, you could conserve forests, and these avoided emissions end up potentially becoming uh, options to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. And so uh, it results in lower amount of carbon dioxide uh, concentration in the atmosphere, which is the cause primarily of climate change and global warming because the excess greenhouse gas uh, results in heating of our atmosphere. So the more trees we have, um, the more forests we keep, and especially with the ecosystem services that forests provide, we can actually sequester a lot more carbon. But let's not forget also the blue carbon aspects of nature-based climate solutions. So mangroves, seagrasses, coral reefs, and so on, also contribute to sequestering carbon dioxide through the oceans and through the coastal areas. So these uh, nature-based or natural climate solutions are really important in the way in which we fight climate change because they not only provide sequestering opportunities, so removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but of course going out into nature is always beneficial for the mind, for the heart, for the body, um, and enjoying nature is something that we all appreciated during uh, the pandemic. I'm sure we all went out to breathe fresh air and nature-based climate solutions has the potential to provide all of that benefits to society and to countries, especially in our fight against climate change. I think everyone's trying their best. So the nature-based climate solutions advocates, they're mainly people who have been trained in the sciences, in field ecology, in bi uh, biological diversity. And I think the fight to protect biodiversity is also something really important. Um, and you know, in, in this part of the world, in Asia, there's a lot of illegal wildlife trade, there's a lot of uh, interest in uh, certain species of animals and plants, and we exploit them because of medicinal use uh, or other sort of traditional forms of medication, uh, which, is, which is quite sad. And I think what we need to do is to protect all species through nature-based climate solutions that has the potential to do that. Living in Singapore, Melissa has seen how climate change has affected her community and how it poses an existential threat to the global environment. I, I think one thing that us Singaporeans feel very strongly about also is we know that we're probably not getting it as bad as other countries in the region around the world. Um, because we're urbanized, uh, we, live in, we live in comfort, thermal comfort in general. Um, but not so much for other countries. And even our neighbours to the north and south, to Malaysia and Indonesia, we know um, we get these videos uh, from the news of when, when flood, floods happen, they happen. And these are floods that we can't even fathom because we don't have major rivers or mountains in, in our country, a tiny little country. Um, so, so I think what, what I, I have generally experienced is just higher temperatures. It's uncomfortable, but it's definitely not as much um, you know, of a discomfort compared to, I wouldn't even call it a discomfort for some of these other countries, it's existential. They definitely should be doing something about addressing climate change because it's going to affect us one way or another. Prices are going to rise because crops will fail. Um, we're not going to get these you know, vegetables and meats and things that you've enjoyed, we've enjoyed all these years at the same prices because there'll just be a shortage of it uh, all around the world. Um, you know, temperatures will get 
higher and higher, there'll be more frequent flooding, drought conditions, and it will generally get more and more unbearable. And if not for us, for the future generation as well. And I think one thing to be really concerned about is that young people that I've spoken to are starting to think about whether or not they should even have children because they're worried that they're bringing in innocent lives into a world that's uninhabitable for them, for their, their own children and grandchildren. And that's really worrying. So we're not actually saving the planet, we're saving the human race, if you think about it, right? So it's uh, the human species has done so much in contribution to anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and causing climate change. And we're effectively killing off ourselves and bringing down all the other species of flora and fauna while we're at it, which is very unfair. So we should absolutely do everything we can to reduce consumption, have more mindful consumption uh, of products, services. Uh, and we have the power, right? Those of us who live in an urban setting and we have the purchasing power as we call it, right? So you can make conscious decisions about what you buy, uh, what, you, what you eat, what you contribute to um, in every aspect of your life. What kind of banks you go to or, or bank with. Um, when you go out, bring maybe a receptacle like a Tupperware or a, a bottle so that you can refill it instead of buying single-use plastic, you know. And you can also bring your own bag uh, especially with you know, a lot of places now charging for plastic bags, you definitely don't want to be spending the extra money anyway. So you can save money and save the planet and save the human race while you're at it. I think that's really compelling reasons to address climate change. From her YCLE exchange program to COP15, to her current work in climate action and policy, Melissa is dedicated to raising climate change awareness. But the work doesn't stop there and she is now pursuing a PhD at the National University of Singapore's Department of Geography. So while I'm doing all this work in nature-based climate solutions, so having just switched jobs uh, from one space to another, um, in addition to you know, helping to, to build executive education courses for, for our centre, um, I'm also trying to finish my PhD. <laughs> uh, so I'm halfway through, more than halfway through now, and so the next step is really to get the qualifying exam done and become a PhD candidate officially from a student to become a candidate and get that thesis written and submitted. So I can finally call myself a doctor. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's been a long time coming. I started the program when uh, COVID hit, when the pandemic started. So I've been so very sheltered, and uh, but I realized that now when with social gatherings starting up again, uh, there's a lot of demands on my time. So I've got had to be a bit more selective and protect my time, set boundaries and so on. So, but, but I think, I think it'll work out. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking forward to contributing where I can and while you know, pursuing things that I, I find meaning in. There's never enough knowledge about uh, how to address climate change. And the honest answer is that I've been pressured you know, a lot by colleagues, by people I, I consider as mentors as well. And I think the reality in perhaps even this part of the world, right, out here in Asia, um, qualifications do matter. People perhaps don't see you as a qualified expert if you don't have the paperwork to show for. I know that sounds very superficial, but it is a cultural thing, uh, I would say, at least in my experience. Um, and so, you know, having a master's degree, you sit in rooms where people have, have years and years of experience, but they don't 
perhaps look at you um, as an expert because you, you're not a doctor or you don't have a PhD. Um, and I find that, um, you know, quite, of course, it's very uncomfortable for me and I, do, I obviously am not doing the PhD because of that only, but the pressure is one thing. And I've only decided to do it now at this time in my life because I feel ready for it. So even though the pressure uh, was there, you know, five, six years ago, you know, it was always on my time, right? So I decided to pursue it only in 2020 when I felt ready for it. Um, so again, you know, don't, don't let people tell you what to do, or what you can't do or what you can do. Um, just know that because you're going to have to get through it yourself um, for the most part. And it's, it can be a lonely journey, but you find support in, in, in things, you know, in people around you as well. So um, the PhD, I suppose, is really more for me to, um, you know, also fulfill the academic qualifications to uh, get better at my job um, and to move up uh, where possible in, in, in the ranks, right? Uh, but, you know, I think one of my passions is really teaching also in capacity building and having a PhD would open some doors potentially for me to teach in at the university level. Otherwise, typically at the master's level, uh, with that qualification, it only allows you to teach um, at the pre-university or lower. So I think the universities are a great space to, to, to cultivate uh, leadership and to cultivate better knowledge. And if I can, I would like to do that. So being in the policy space is tricky because uh, quite often you want to produce research and outcome findings of your research in accessible uh, platforms or through accessible platforms like um, newspaper commentaries or policy briefs that quite often don't count towards your academic credentials, right? So these are journal, peer-reviewed journals, internationally ranked, uh, top-tier journals as we call them. So um, I find that you know, I had to make a conscious decision and I constantly make this decision to publish um, shorter, more accessible pieces. And obviously your career trajectory takes a hit because uh, you know, without peer-reviewed journals, it can be very challenging for others to put you up for promotions and so on, especially if you, if you conform to a traditional sort of academic setting. But I think things are changing and I'm hopeful that um, you know, non-academic work and contribution back to policy making and society uh, will count for something. So it's really important to have a supportive network of colleagues where possible. It's not always the case, of course, um, but do find mentors and do find colleagues who, who can, you know, sort of prop you up instead of bring you down. Um, and I think what the pandemic certainly has taught all of us is that well-being and mental health is so important. Um, so on top of all these work responsibilities, it's also about being true to yourself and being true to what you, you feel strongly about. And I think universities are, they may not be changing as quickly as we would like them to, but I think in order to get the word out about public health and climate change and, and, and how important it is to address both uh, at the same time is going to come from, a lot of it has to come from the universities working together with doctors and public health professionals. Uh, and so we've got to work together and, and figure out how we can best um, support both academics but also medical practitioners. In addition to being an environmental advocate, Melissa is also an avid reader. Before the global pandemic put a pause on in-person social outings, Melissa ran, and continues to run, a book swap to encourage recycling and reading. Back home in Singapore, before the pandemic, of course, yeah. we had to pause it. But I run something called Books and Beer. Uh, so it's a book swap where we swap books while drinking beer. And the idea really is to encourage people to read outside of their 
go-to genres. It's a not-for-profit initiative and it, it could be that in Singapore people always think of extracurricular activities as it's a side hustle, right? And everybody wants to be able to make a quick buck out of side hustles. But for me, it's really not about that. You know, it's about encouraging people to, to read and to read widely um, and also recycling of books, right? One man's treasure is another man's, you know, well, one man's junk is another man's treasure, as, as we, we say. So I, I like doing that very much. And uh, one of the, the, the co-founders of Books and Beer, uh, you know, we, we always like to joke that it's also a bit of a, a dating sort of platform. People can come and meet uh, folks who read uh, broadly similar genres to you, uh, could be very nice, could be exciting and uh, this obviously helps with the low birth rates in Singapore, <laughs> we like to think. Um, but yeah, so the, it's been quite exciting, we, we, we've been running it since 2011, so it's been a number of years, um, save for when the pandemic was happening, but yeah, we're looking to restart it very soon. Melissa's exchange had a meaningful impact on her career and life providing her with a new network of people from which she's able to draw inspiration and share ideas with as she works toward her goal of addressing climate change. I mentioned earlier when I applied for the Young Southeast Asian Leadership Initiative back in 2016, I was really afraid I wouldn't get it. Um, and I, I also had to ask for time off from work, right? But thankfully, you know, I had such a supportive boss at the time um, who said, you know, because I told him it was it was a you know an important leadership program and it was fully sponsored for me to go to the U.S. for five weeks, and he said, "Go, take your academic leave. Um, you know, as long as you just check your emails once in a while, it'll be fine. But don't worry, and just go." And I, I I can't thank him enough because if I had another person uh, who was leading the the institute who said, "No, you can't," because it's eating into your time at work. I would have been devastated. Um, so personally, I feel like I now have the responsibility to, where possible, if I have colleagues, to support them in, in, their, in their interests, right? Uh, especially when it comes to exchange programs. And I've benefited from not only the, 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 the US uh, exchange, but also in, in exchanges when I was in school, when I went to London, to King's College, as part of my undergraduate degree. Um, when I came back at the time, my dad said I was a totally different person. Um, so I've always felt that, that exchanges are really important because it exposes you to a different culture altogether, whether it's work or social, um, cultural experiences are so important because it, it opens your mind to possibilities. It opens um, you know, all sorts of doors for you, uh, especially professionally as well and you know the networks that I've made and friends that I've made from around the world uh, whether it's from the US or from Southeast Asia uh, because we have regular gatherings whether it's on Zoom or in person now that the pandemic is we're at the endemic stage of the pandemic um, has just been invaluable right and just this morning we were at breakfast and we saw some some friends that we've not seen in ages and it was just so nice and it just reminds us that, that what this is all about is about fellowship Right, and it's about community and making sure that we uh, we understand each other and we, we can tap on our, each other's expertise and networks to you know drive at a certain goal that we all want to achieve, a common goal which is to help address climate change. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing your story with us. In part two of this series on climate action, we'll hear from Marie-Christine Colo, 
Mandela Washington Fellowship Exchange alumni, eco-feminist, and social entrepreneur from Madagascar. Everyone has a story to tell. People, places, and international exchange. Join us to hear the extraordinary stories of exchange alumni and how their lives have been forever changed. This is Voices of Exchange.